We're continuing this journey looking at 1 Corinthians, um, where, where Paul ha- is engaging one of the first churches that he actually planted, and he's heard back from them, and he's heard about divisions that they have, issues that they have, and, and he's sending them a letter to both encourage them and to correct them um, about how to be unified, even when they don't have uniformity, around this new thing called the gospel that they've been introduced to. Um, and, and so he's continuing to talk about it, and whenever he writes, we mentioned this last week, is that he always has one eye toward um, the new believers that are in the church and the folks that maybe don't even know the gospel within, within the city, and also another eye toward those, those more mature believers. And so he writes with, those, with both of those audiences in hand. Um, and so he has a message for those people that would consider themselves mature, and he writes to those people that would consider themselves may, maybe new to this whole thing called following Jesus. Um, and he cradles those together in everything they do. And so we're going to see that as we read today in, in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10. And, and this, if, this is smack in the middle. Last week, we, we talked about the three chapters where Paul talks about meat. All right? And it was rousing, and we're like, yay, we understand meat by the end of last week. In the midst of this, he actually shifts a little bit to be a little more pointed about idols. And really, that's the bigger issue when he's even talking about meat. And this is what he talks about. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. All right, that's really confusing especially if you jump into that out of everything. What he's talking about, he, he's introducing and recalling the story of the Exodus. He's recalling the story of liberation that, that, where God brought um, the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, and how God provided for them and how they followed God in the midst of that. And it says, and they, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, and not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And let's pause here because that's just not a good translation, all right? To say they sat down and ate and drank and they rose up to play. And you're thinking, well, what's wrong with that? If I could sit down and eat and then get up and play, that would be amazing, all right? Really, this this idea of play, it's revel is, is almost the better word there. And really, it's, it's that they, all they were consumed with was just, is my belly full and am I celebrating something? Oftentimes, that was themselves. Okay? So that's more the picture. When we talk about this idolatry, it wasn't just that they ate well and they played, but it was a self-centeredness and just concern with their own belly, with their own selves and everything. All right? It says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Because you're often destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. One more translation. Note, really, this is the end of the ages. A better way to translate that is actually now that the, the consummation of everything has happened. So he's saying to these people who are living in, a time, in the times after Jesus' death and resurrection, saying, listen, something's new. All of this is coming to a head in this Jesus, and this is the time in which we're living. Okay? It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. For God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you, may, that you may be able to endure it. Now listen, this is one of the probably most misquoted, misapplied verses in, in Scripture, and I want us to kind of unpack that a little bit today as we talk about what Paul's talking about um, when he talks about idols. And we, when we first started Corinthians, we talked a little bit about the city of Corinth, a little bit about the setting, but I think it would be do us some good to look at that a little bit more in depth today as we understand what Paul's talking about. You see, Corinth was a city that was a Grecian city that was sacked by Rome in about 50 B.C. And then Caesar actually built it back up, um, and it was this major thoroughfare. They were an important city, and they were at this crossroads of all these ideas and things that were going on within the Roman Empire. Um, and also, it, w- it was a city where idols infused everything. There were temples on almost every corner. It impacted everything. And, and you see, this, in this culture, it was one, this, this Greco-Roman culture, it was polytheistic. I mean, they, they worshipped many gods. Um, it, was, it was a culture of excessiveness. It was a very wealthy city in, in Corinth. And, and within their belief system, excessiveness was, was proof of blessing. They just wanted more stuff, and that was, that was a goal of life. It was very, very individualistic. They're very focused on just the individual rather than the community. And, and it was also a very self-serving culture where the goal of, of, and you'll see this throughout the writing of Paul, and you see these four things that he's often writing against because this is what the culture was. That it was polytheistic, it was excessive, it was individualistic, and it was self-serving. And into this culture, you brought the, the, the values of, of the Hebrew people. And you brought the values of those who were following Jesus, and they contrasted, because rather than polytheistic, it was monotheistic. There was one God, there was one living God who they followed. It was, it was about holiness, not about excessiveness. It was about maintaining righteousness. It was about unity, not the individual. And it was self-sacrificing, not about self-serving. And so in this context, these are the questions that, that the folks within that he's writing this letter to they were discussing. It's like, listen, if these are our values, how, how do our values mix with the values of this culture that seems that they're at odds? It's how, how do they blend at times? And, and so within this context, you see both old and new believers struggling with this. You see old and new believers struggling with how does this work out within our churches? How does this work out within our communities? Because you had folks that were, that were new in the faith, and their struggle was that their struggle was that they were trying not to be coerced by idols. If they've, it was part of their culture. It was part of what, what they drank. It, and they were trying to follow Jesus, but at the same time being kind of swayed by these cultural values that they've had before. And then you have the, the old in the faith, and they are the ones that kind of sit back, and they struggle with judging these new believers. Maybe they've grown up with the law. Maybe they've grown up with this understanding of holiness and righteousness, and the ones that sit back and say, These people just don't get it. These people are horrible. How are these people even part of our church? And these were the struggles. And to these folks, he he warns them. You know, this is that part that says, "Let therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Basically he's saying, when you are so pridefully sure of yourself, when you're so pridefully sure of your own rightness, of your own correctness, of your own moral standing, watch out. Because we saw last week, there's this knowledge that puffs us up that's not even knowledge. 
We have to hold that with an open hand and hold that with humility. And see, this is the situation that Paul speaks into about how to live in a culture that's full of idols. And so we have to ask the question, just what, what are idols? You know, that's something that we don't deal with a lot of times. That's something that belongs like Indiana Jones movies for us. We don't talk about it a lot. So, so what are idols? And it's simply, listen, idols are things that we put our trust in other than God. And now for this culture, that was something very physical. There are physical representations of, of, of the gods that, that they looked to, to worship, that impacted all of their daily, daily life. Um, but ultimately, even though on most corners there's a temple to a god or, or a goddess, and there was a city that was very focused on gods, when you looked at these idols, they were fundamentally man-centric, not God-centric. You know, that, that all of these gods and goddesses, they, they were based on people's image of God, not necessarily who God was, God's self. And then when you look at the application of, of these gods and these idols, when you boil it down to it's that you weren't worshiping a god, you were worshiping what you want. Um, so they had, you know, the god of rain and the harvest, and they worshiped the god in the rain and the harvest because they wanted a good harvest. You know, there was the goddess of love because they, they wanted love in their life. There was the god of war because they wanted victory. You see, what they're setting out there are worshiping what they wanted to get what they wanted, not necessarily for the God or goddess in and of itself. And we can stand here, you know, 2,000 years later and say, wow, that seems kind of silly, but we're not that far away from that. About saying that God's really about what we want, about God's really more about our image of God than maybe who God's revealed God's self to be. You know, it, it reminds me um, a while back, I forgot where we were, Kirsten and I were somewhere. I think it might have been, it wasn't we were in Texas sometime, we went to like, back when we used to like just walk through stores because it was fun and we were in a different new place and there were no kids with us to say, hey, buy me this. Um, and we came across this thing, I can't remember where we were, but there, were, there was a magic eight ball Jesus, all right, that, that you took him and, and you shook him and, and he'd tell you kind of what you wanted to know and like the questions, like you'd ask a Magic eight ball, Jesus, a question, and you shake him and turn him upside down, and it was like, I don't know, I'll ask my father, or something like that, all right? Um, I forgot some of the other ones. Um, but, but really, that's not too far off of how we treat God sometimes. Is it, well, I want something, let me, let me kind of shake it up, and let me get an answer, and let me get, figure out what I want, and if it's not the one I want, we'll just shake it up again, and do it, do it over again. And this is how we treat God sometimes, this is how we treat God as even an idol sometimes. So these idols, these were these temples, these were this, these worships, these places of worship within Corinth, where folks worship not so much the gods and goddesses as their conception of gods and go- of gods and goddesses, and really what they wanted for themselves. Now, I hope you're already starting to form some parallels already. But when we read scripture, when we read, um, especially the letters within the New Testament, what we have to do, we have to look at. There's a specific truth, which is. Here's what the writer was meaning to the people to whom they are writing. So there's a meaning in that time. All right? This is very literal. We talked last week about meat sacrifice to idols. He was talking about a very specific situation to a very specific group of people about one thing. 
But also as we read, we want to take that, we want to understand a more, more general truth, one that applies really through, throughout time to find something beyond just that immediate context. And, and so today, if you look at what idols were then, and I hope you're making some of those connections, what, what are our idols? What are, what are those things that take the place of God in our life today? And we're going to do the really awkward thing, and I'm going to actually ask, ask for, for um, any answers. Phones? All right. So even, even like with that, it's, like, it's just distraction sometimes, or entertainment. We can have an idol of that. Jobs, yeah. And deeper, there, there's, there's so many things within our job. It, it, it's fundamental. It's, it's identity, it's security, it's value, it's, it's wealth. All of these things. Safety, yeah. Image. Kids, yeah, family. Yeah, and all of these things. And if you hear things that, that people are throwing out as idols, it's not always bad things. You know, kids aren't always bad, all right? <laughs> Jobs aren't always bad, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but, it's there's things that they have been raised to something ultimate. When I, when I was thinking about idols, some of the things that I, I wrote down, that idols are that it's comfort, that it's approval, that it, it's money, it's pleasure, it's control, um, it's identity. I think, I think identity sometimes can be one of the biggest idols we struggle with now. And, and so where we place our identity in something that's other than God, whether, whether it's, um, you know, there's things that make us look better, whether it is our job, whether it is our role. Listen, I think something that's happening now is people are placing a huge identity just based on where they were born. And so you have an idol uh, of nationalism rising up, which is competing with Jesus, and it's almost trying to blend the two together, and it doesn't work very well. But when we raise our identity up and say that this is something that's so important to me, that it's the core of who I am, that it's, that it's greater than God, then, then it, um, that it really breaks us down. You look back at, at the mature in their faith that Paul is talking to. And one of the things that, as they spoke in judgment toward these new believers, and as he said, hey, listen, um, remember that when you are pridefully sure of yourself, watch out. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's talking about, listen, while you aren't worshiping the idols on the street corner, there's an idol of your identity that you're worshiping. You're worshiping your own correctness. You're worshiping your own standing in the midst of that. that their pride and their belief system could actually turn into an idol of itself. And that's hard sometimes when our thoughts about God become higher than God, God's self. And so all of a sudden when our identity is wrapped up, well, this is who I am, then that can trip us up sometimes. All right, so um, I, I read that some of the indicators of our idols, um, it, it's, we ask the question, what are we most afraid to lose? You know, um, what are we most defensive about? When something's attacked, when, when something might be taken away, what, what do we rise up against the most? You know, that what takes us out of our ability to act like Jesus? 
When, when, we have, when, when something's attacked and we say, well, well, this is more important than me actually communicating and becoming more like Jesus, then this might be something we might consider an idol. Uh, now, Paul gives us some examples here. Examples not really of idolatry, but the effects of idolatry. As he goes through the story of, of Israel in the wilderness, the first thing he says is, is immorality, specifically sexual immorality. Um, he brings this up because in that culture, one of the biggest ways people participated in worshiping of these other gods was through sexual immorality, through temple prostitutes, through, through um, that as an act of worship, being part of these feasts that were just out, out of control. And so we understand this, that there's this temptation to immorality because of something is valued more than the will of God. When we talk about idols and we take it out of first century temple practice, that we can understand that immorality happens sometimes because we value something more than the will of God. We value something more than God. And so we'll chase after that because that's our highest goal. That's our our highest goal. Aim. And I think many times when we talk about idols, because this is something we talk about in church sometimes, that that's what we think about. What are those things that we want more than we want God? And where does that lead us to? What, what means do we justify to get whatever that end is? That leads to immorality. But Paul doesn't stop there. He mentions two more. The, first one, the next one he mentions is putting Christ to the test. And I'll admit, as I was reading through this, that one, that one made me pause and say, like, I don't really understand what that means. So immorality, I, I have a handle around that a little bit. But putting Christ to the test, I, I don't understand that. And really, what this comes down to, and from the research I said, it, it, it comes down to, to pushing limits. Um, basically, it's this, almost this cavalier attitude with who Jesus is. It's this idea that, you know what? I'll be forgiven no matter what, so it doesn't matter what I do. To say that, listen, if, if Jesus has me, then who cares what's ha- what I, I do right now? It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, and again, what it's doing is actually valuing something else above the kingdom of God. It's saying that, listen, my desire is not for God's will to reign here on earth, but my desire is I can do whatever I want, and I'll be okay in the end. There's this attitude that it doesn't matter what we do right now, but what we do now matters. You know, Paul later in the same letter, he says, listen, the work that we do now in Christ is not done in vain. The work we do for the kingdom now actually carries on through eternity. And then the last effect of idolatry is, is, is grumbling. It's fun. I, I would love to like, see a, a word study or track a word study or like the Bible Project to do a word study um, about just grumbling within the Bible. Because grumbling and mumbling, it happens a lot, and, and there's big consequences to it, but it leads to grumbling. And what happens is when we worship idols, when we worship other things uh, over God, we chase after other things more than God, what happens is idols that leads to dashed expectations. We have this expectation of something that's going to happen for us. We're going to ha- we have this expectation that once I attain this, then I'm going to have completeness. And then when we reach that, we get that thing, and it doesn't lead to wholeness. Then it leads to disappointment. And disappointment leads to grumbling because God didn't work like I wanted God to. God didn't come through like I thought God was going to. You know what? I had this nice little 
packaged theology that if I do this, this, and this, then God does this, this, and li- this. And so just because, listen, if I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, then God's supposed to make my life this way. Well, I prayed, I read my Bible, I went to church. My life didn't turn out this way. Something's wrong with God. And so that leads, leads to grumbling. That leads, leads to this, this, this murmuring. This leads to, to, in the Old Testament, Israelites saying, you know what, take us back to Egypt. God, you're not, you're not all that, you're not what you cracked out to be. You cracked up to be. Leads to, leads to grumbling. Because what it is, is about worshiping what God can do for you, what God can give you, rather than worshiping God himself. And so Paul gives us these examples of the effects of idolatry on us and understanding that this, this leads to disappointment, this leads to grumbling, this leads to immorality. It, it, it ultimately leads to destruction because we've gone off way. And he mentions, and he goes on after this talk about idolatry and his examples. He ends the section by saying, listen, no, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, this seems like a jump because he's talking about idols, and then he says, well, listen, there's no temptation that you have that's not common to man. But it's not that much of a jump because the temptation he's talking about, the one that's common to everybody, is valuing something above God. It is the worship of idols, whether that idol is ourself, whether that idol is something outside of ourself, that we all have this temptation to pursue idols. And what happens when we pursue that idol, when we pursue that thing that's not God, and, the pl- and we pursue that in, in place of God, it can, lead to, it can lead to actions because we're seeking something. And so it leads to those things like morality because we're looking for something that's, that we don't think is contained within God. And, and that, so we, we deal dishonestly at work so we can gain more money or we can gain a higher position. Or, or we deal cruelly with people in our family because our identity is so wrapped up in having kids that act perfectly. I need them to be perfect in front of other people. That's what people think about me. And so, so when we chase after idols, it can lead to action that's not of the will of God. But on the other side, pursuing these idols, it can, it can lead to inaction. I think this is one that maybe we don't talk about as much, that it can lead to inaction that... Our idols, so our idols can cause us to do things that aren't right because we're chasing after things, but our idols can get in the way of us doing the right thing because we're chasing other things as well. Because we're afraid to lose something. So do we not stand up for others because we're afraid of losing our idols? Do we see Injustice happening, but because our true idol is wealth or esteem or the approval of other people, do we not work to rectify it? You see, idols don't just lead us to do things, to, act, to, to action doesn't hold it. It also prevents us from doing the right thing as well. And so Paul says in the midst of this is don't, don't f- turn toward idolatry but in the midst of this, he gives us things to, to remember. This is where we're going to end up today. It's because we're sitting here, um, all of us, all of us have this struggle. All of us have a struggle to put things ahead of God, to put things over God. And so it'd be helpful if God gave us something to say, hey, you know what, this is something you're going to struggle with. Um, I want you to remember these things. 
All right? And so these are the things that, that Paul is writing to the Corinthians to say, listen, you're in a culture that, that is, is awash with idols, with people chasing after everything whose, whose value, whose fabric seems opposed to who you're trying to be within the situation. So here's what I want you to remember. Uh, look down at the end of the section in verse, verse 12 through the end. It says, listen, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. For God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So the first thing we see in this, things to remember when when we're tempted, or or another way to translate this word is actually about trials. We're going through hardship, when we're going through temptation. The first thing to understand is that that God understands. He says, listen, there's no temptation that is not common to man in the midst of this, that in the midst of whatever temptation you have, in the midst of whatever trial you're undertaking, you're not alone. I think that whenever, whenever we come across, whenever we have struggle, I think it's easy for us to think that this is my struggle and no one else can walk beside me in this. No one else can be there for me in this because I am the only person in the history of the world that's ever dealt with this problem. And to this, Paul reminds us, listen, you are not alone in this. When he says, listen, there's no temptation that's not common to man, it's not a, hey, you know what, this isn't unique, suck it up, we all dealt with this. That's not what it's saying, all right? He's saying is that what you're going through, people have gone through. That you're not alone in this. That there is someone there who can help you shoulder this. There is someone there who, can, who understands what's going, what's going on. And, and beyond this, that Jesus himself has gone through this. Listen, that's the amazing thing about the story of Jesus is that it's about a God who doesn't just stand afar and say, hey, do the right thing because I'm God and I say so. It's about a God who actually enters into the story of humanity, who actually understands, understands what we go through, understands our struggles, understands the weaknesses we have. And says, I'm with you in this. And so the first thing you know is that you are not alone. That God understands there's no temptation that's not common to man. There are people there around you to help you through this. This is why church exists, that people can stand and help shoulder these burdens. That there is nothing in your life that you have to go through alone. The next thing we see as we go through this, it says, listen, there's no temptation that's overtaking you that's not common to man. For God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The second thing we, we want to understand is that, that God is in control. Whatever situation, whatever temptation, whatever trial, that God is still in control. And I want us to understand that that's not a call to inaction. That's not a call to say, I don't have to do anything, God's in control. That's definitely not a call when you see someone else struggling to say, don't worry about it, God's in control. But what that means is that we do understand that that we have faith that God is doing something. And so we join in to what God is doing because ultimately God is in control. That the work we do is not in vain, it is leading to something. 
So we understand this not so we just sit back and do nothing saying, well, I guess God's got this. But we do this so we can fight off discouragement knowing that, listen, God is with you and God is working in this moment. Leaving all things to be reconciled and that progress might be very incremental. But God is in control. And as we have faith in God's control, then we have faith to actually join in to what God is doing. So we understand that God understands we're not alone, that God's in control. And the last thing is we go through struggles, we go through temptations, we go through trial. This news says, God is faithful, he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with a temptation he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, this this doesn't mean that whatever you're facing, there's like an open window off to the side that if you just look hard enough, you would find it. That's not what it means. That doesn't mean that, that there's an easy fix to anything. That doesn't mean that if you can't see your way out of it, it's because of your own lack of faith. That is not what this means. What this does mean is that God is still our hope. that God provides a way out. It doesn't say to escape it, but it says to endure it. The, the, the basis of this, as it says here, is that God is faithful. This isn't, this isn't about some magic door that gets you out of whatever struggle you're in the midst of. But it's about a God who is faithful that says, I'll be with you in this that I am in control, that I will be there to help you endure it. That I'll walk beside you in this. My love is perfect in this. And so as we, as we understand and we, and, we, and we face the same battle the, the Corinthians did, we, we face the same struggle within ourselves to say, all right, am I living for God? Am I living, or am I going to live for something other than God? We see that, that God's provided himself. That God's provided the church, the people around us to help us endure these things. Because we know that, that you're not alone. That God's in control and that, that our hopes in him, that God is faithful and all things.